Hi, everybody. Good evening. Welcome to Evoke Therapy Program's broadcast. I'm Dr. Brad Reedy. Today is Thursday, December 28th, 2023. Tonight's broadcast is something I'm very familiar with because this was me as a child, oppositional defiant disorder. So I'm going to speak at it from the place of the child, try to give a, a, a voice to the behavior, to the symptoms, to the diagnosis, and also, of course, talk about the, the kind of growth, the kind of stretching, the expansion that we as parents can do in this process spiritually to best support our child's journey who might be displaying this. I, I always talk to people about this idea that there are a few ways to escape the dilemmas of our childhood. One is, of course, to, to be, com be compliant, uh, to, to become hyper-cooperative, to, to be a pleasing person. And many people choose that path. And those who choose that path often argue with those who are choosing the, the, the fight version of escape, the way to the, the, the rebellion, the oppositionality. They say it, it makes it easier, but there are certain personalities, certain temperaments that choose to fight. You know, we're really talking about that, that fight or that flight, not just in a moment, but a style, uh, the way that you operate. So tonight we're going to be focusing on those children who choose to deal with the dilemmas, the challenges of childhood. I'm not just talking about trauma of childhood because sometimes it's not about trauma. It's about the limits, the, 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 the barriers, the, the frustrations, the difficulties of life. Those who choose to combat it with this oppositional temperament, this, this, this way of, of fighting with the system. It's something that I'm actually very fond of. It, you know, every diagnosis, every disorder comes also with a gift. And the gift of those that are willing to fight and willing to rebel is that they blaze new paths, right? They, they, they make a difference in the world. So I'm going to be talking about it from many perspectives. It's one of my favorite topics. It's the kind of student, client, young person that I love to deal with often when I'm doing parent coaching or parent work and a, and a parent has this type of a child, it's so easy for me to be uh, to feel a, a, an affection and an affinity for these type of kids. Before I get into the bulk of the content this evening, I'm going to do my commercial, my, my kind of uh, who's paying for this. I'm going to talk about Finding You. Finding You is Evoke Therapy Program's Therapeutic Intensive. It's a, it's a seven-person, seven-individual, five-day intensive, all-encompassing. All so you show up, you hand in your electronics, and for five days, you're immersed in a therapeutic process. This is not psychoeducation, although that happens during it. This is a therapeutic experience. So if you are new to therapy and you're wondering what people mean when they talk about doing your work and, and what is your work, finding you is the ability to identify what that work is. If you have some significant experience in therapy, if you've begun therapy and you're looking for something to accelerate the process. When I attended my version of this, when I went to something like this in 2010, that was after at least 15 years of individual therapy. At the encouragement of some friends, a couple of friends that I had, I attended a similar kind of experience. And I, and I was really skeptical, although I was desperate at the same time, looking for something to kind of dislodge the, the, the stuckness that I was feeling in my life. Um, I was skeptical of the ability for it to show me or, or give me an experience that I wasn't already having in therapy because I believe that I have the, have the most wonderful therapist in the world, still have that same therapist to this day. But I got what was promised. I got exactly what I needed. 
and I found a, a new level, a new awareness. Some of the information wasn't new, but the experiential, experiential group, group aspect of it was incredibly powerful. So we decided to start our own. This, in my opinion, finding you is the best thing you can do. If you have questions or are struggling about marriage, if you have questions or you're struggling about your, your, your parenting journey, or if you're dealing with any other individual life issue. We really do believe from an attachment perspective that the fundamental work is becoming who you are. I've seen some, some memes this week, or not memes, some, some social media posts, inspirational posts this week about setting new goals. And there really is a shift out there, at least in my algorithm, the one that I'm seeing on my feed. There's a shift out there from goal setting to becoming who you are. From Instead of thinking about becoming a better you, Think about becoming the authentic you. And I know that might sound strange to those of you who haven't had this experience, but when you become your, your most authentic and real self, it comes with a joy, freedom, a sense of empowerment, a lack of anxiety, a, a break in the, in the clouds of the depression. It really is the foundational piece. And as I've said in the past, even though tonight I am advertising and encouraging you to take advantage of this wonderful resource. Um, if you don't want to come to ours, go to somebody else's. And I'm not talking about a psychoeducational experience. I'm talking about a family of origin, what happened to me when I was young, and how is that tying into the challenges that I have today. No matter how much psychoeducation I, I do as a participant or as a teacher, we have to face the things that frighten us. We have to face the things that cause us anxiety. I found out in my own experience, I wasn't so much confused as I was afraid. And I would not have said that. I did not say that going into it. I thought I was confused. But really what it was, was I was afraid to, to make decisions in my life and then have to face the, the guilt, the shame, uh, the, the potential regret that came from making those decisions. So finding you is our foundation. I can think of no better investment in your, in your life. And just to be clear, just to take out the conflict of interest that is inherent when I'm selling one of our programs. If you don't want to come to Finding You, go to on-site workshops. Go to the House of Okala. Go to the Meadows Survivor Program. Go to Karen's Breakthrough Program. Go to anything like this that does this kind of work. Go to the Bridge to Recovery. Find one that does this kind of work. I can't think of anything more valuable. Even those of you who come to this broadcast with a parenting focus, this is how you do it. This is the, the, the foundation, the skills, the awareness that you gain to become a better and more capable parent. So if you, if you see that there's a problem in your marriage or in your child, this is the pathway. This is the inescapable path to go on. So I could, I could talk about it for, for days and believe in it with my whole heart. My entire adult family has been there. My partners in business have been there. Several of our therapists and, and management have been to these I have sent a few friends to these programs. I really believe in these. And, and most all of those people that I just mentioned, none of them virtually went to our program. They went to one of these other ones. I am partial to ours. So finding you is the option. The next available in-person option is January 17th through 21st, February 21st through 25th. After that, there's also a couples finding you, a couples uh, workshop that myself and, and my wife will be running in February. So if you're interested in doing it with your partner, Come to that one. And then, of course, we have an online option once a month, 
January 26th through 28th. That's a really good lead-in to tonight's broadcast because we're going to be talking about children who are demonstrating rebellion or oppositionality. One of my favorite quotes ever comes from a speech that Dr. Martin Luther King gave where he said, a riot is the language of the unheard. I think sometimes when people hear that, they th- because so many people are tied into justifications or not, like, is it justified? Is it the right thing? This is outside of that, right? This is in a, in a, a place of non-judgment. It's not about saying that it's okay to riot because you don't feel like your voice is heard. It's saying that's just what happens. When people feel powerless, when they feel like they can't have their voice heard, that they can't have a seat at the table to negotiate, when there's no dialogue, when they're feeling a, a sense of utter powerlessness in their life, sometimes the only option that they find access to is this rebellion, this oppositionality. So oppositionality is a response. It's not a, a, the cause. It's actually the result of a systemic issue that needs attention. Like so many things that we talk about, if we look at the root causes and treat the root causes, the symptoms themselves dissipate. There, there becomes no need for the symptom in the long run. I'm going to be quoting several people over and over this evening. One is J.D. Gill. That's the pen name for my therapist, Jamie Gill. And she said this in one of her books. She said, to state the obvious, rebels are angry. In order to see and understand them, this anger must be understood too. I've said to the, the children that I work with in my practice, and to the parents that I work with in relationship to working with their children, I've said, if anger is the only door that we have to, to get in, to, to find and understand the child, we must be willing to take it. So many adults and parents and partners get caught up in the way that, that they're, they're, they need to protect themselves, and that's completely fine. You're allowed to protect yourself. That's your, that's your right, your inherent right to protect yourself. But as you begin to expand in your awareness and see things differently and see things through a different lens, you realize that, for, for example, anger was not something in your childhood perhaps that was tolerated, that anger was seen as a significant threat, so you've inherited or been conditioned to believe that same way. But, but in my experience, sometimes anger is the starting point. It's the way to understand the child. So we listen to that first. I'm going to say this emphatically. In virtually every treatment program in the entire United States, in the entire world, in terms of the ones that I've had connection with and contact with, there is an opportunity for the identified patient, the one who's been sent to the facility for addiction, for mental illness, for, for whatever the symptom is. There's going to be an opportunity for that identified patient to be able to express to family members. If it's parents, if it's a child, if it's a partner, there's going to be some opportunity for that person to express the unexpressed or the unheard feelings that are beneath it all. And that's so difficult for parents and for partners. They say to themselves, I'm not the one with the mental illness. I'm not the one with the addiction. I'm not the one screwing up my life. Why am I now on the hot seat? Why is this about me? But the fact of the matter is when we don't have a, a, a platform, a place, a, a safe um, opportunity to express our feelings because they're, they're too threatening or they're unwelcomed to the people around us, will develop symptoms to communicate them. They will leak. They will come out sideways. 
So in many ways, oppositional defiant disorder, and I'm going to talk about this in, in various ways this evening, oppositional defiant disorder is a signal that something in the system needs attention. That communication or even possibly negotiation or the way that emotions are dealt with or the way that behavioral tasks are, are, are dealt with, that something needs to be addressed. Something needs to be sought out. And you can say, well, it worked for me. It worked for my other children. Many people do hold and, and kind of die on that hill. But the fact of the matter is it's not working for this individual. This individual may need extra support. You've seen the quotes that say that a child who, who needs love will often ask for it in the most unloving ways, right? You've seen the quotes that say that a child will burn down the village, burn down the village if it doesn't fit in just to feel the warmth of the burn, right? That it's better for the, the rebel, at least. It's better for them to act out than to hold it in. It's potentially life-threatening to hold it in. So acting out is a way to get rid of this feeling that they don't know what to deal with, that they feel overwhelmed with. J.D. Gill says, the most fortunate children have had an opportunity to be heard and have their feelings cared about by parents and others who have feelings and voices of their own. In a sense, rebellion is simply an end-of-the-line strategy to be heard and seen when all else has failed. I, see, I, I hear so many people talk about this idea where they think that rebellion and oppositional defiant disorder and depression, all, all these disorders is some kind of conscious choice. It is far from consciousness for most people. It's when virtually when all else has been exhausted. When somebody resort, resorts to violence, for example, it's because they've exhausted all of their tools to be heard, to, be, uh, to feel a sense of, of safety or empowerment in their life. Again, it doesn't justify it. That's not the point. We don't have to justify it or not. We're just explaining the behavior. And that's very different than justifying. We're just trying to understand it. And there's something magical about understanding it. When you shift from thinking that the behavior has to be fixed into right behavior to, to, to the perspective of saying, I wonder what this behavior is trying to communicate. I wonder why this child has resorted to this behavior. You've begun the, the, the heroic journey. Uh, uh, of your parenting and also of helping and supporting the child. Rebellion, I wrote, is kind of last resort for the child who feels powerless. Powerless to show their feelings, to resist the demands put upon them, to have their voice heard, understood, and considered. I've heard therapists say in particular contexts that oppositional defiant disorder is not really a disorder, but a normal response to a sick system. In fact, in a sense, that's the entire premise uh, of the book, uh, The Myth of Normal by Gabor Mate, that it's the system that is a problem. But if that's true, if oppositional defiant disorder is not really a disorder, but really just an adaptive way of dealing with, with the environment, then the fact of the matter is that there are no diagnoses, there are no disorders. That's what all mental health issues are about. And this way of thinking there are no disorders, since all diagnoses and responses to a system that seems in one way or another to not meet the needs of the child, it's basically the same thing. We listen to what the child is unable to say. 
or unwilling to say. And we start to understand what in our past, what in our history, what in our conditioning, what in our way of looking at life is getting in the way of us being becoming a part of the solution. The most heroic thing, the most heroic thing that you can do as a parent or as a partner is to look at yourself. That's what the journey of the heroic parent, the, the book that I wrote, refers to. It's not some glorious riding in on, on a horse and saving the day. It's the courage to look at yourself. That's the message of the myths. That's the message of the stories that we watch, that we read, that we learn about. It is a, a, a look inward. You have to look introspectively. You have to wonder, how might I be contributing to the very problem that I'm complaining about? I don't know that this is a perfect analogy, but it's fresh. I just took a week off prior to the Christmas holiday. And I did it because we have three birthdays in our family leading up to it. Um, and my wife carries the, the, the largest part of the load of these celebrations and holidays and rituals. And so I thought to myself, the week leading up to the holiday, I'm going to take off and help as much as I can, make myself available to all the things that need to get done uh, leading up to it. And it took me a couple of days, as it usually does, to kind of settle into the time off which I did, and I found myself running all kinds of errands and supporting my wife, supporting my children, supporting anybody who needed it. And it was a wonderful week. And Christmas was wonderful. It's not always easy. It's not always wonderful. Everybody seemed to get along. Everybody seemed to enjoy it. There was tremendous gratitude amongst all of us for, for the entire experience. And I was commenting to my wife at the end of the holiday. I was saying, this is a really great Christmas. This is one of the best we've had in some years overall and she said I think so too and she asked me why do you think that was and I wasn't sure but I thought to myself I wonder it's if it if if part of my contribution was I took care of my nervous system see I can be very intense I can be efficient at the cost of everybody else right my I can become very task oriented and 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 really it's just anxiety it's just about trying to manage a whole lot of things at once. But because I, I cleared my, my table, I cleared my slate of all those extra tasks that work require of me, I was able to reset my nervous system. And I, I don't know that it's a direct cause, but maybe, just maybe, part of the reason that the week leading up and Christmas itself was, was such a good one for our family was because I wasn't contributing that negative energy, that anxiety, that intensity that I so often do. And I'm not saying I want to take on the responsibility of everybody's behavior in the family, but I can take on my part of it. I can recognize my part and I can make a difference. Speaking of rebelliousness or rebellion, one reason parental limits and boundaries in the face of rebellion are so fraught with difficulties is that the presence of the rebellion itself speaks to a disturbed parent-child relationship. This is really powerful, really powerful stuff. Tough to read, in fact again by J.D. Gill. In all likelihood, the child has not been heard or allowed to speak his or her true feelings without retaliation. This is another reason the therapist is a good idea. The therapist can interrupt inbred damaging family patterns and allow for a fair hearing of all the views. See, I think it's just going to be difficult for people to see and understand what we're talking about because what parents sometimes think of as inappropriate 
or a, 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 of maybe a violation of their values or, or the family norms, it, it just can be an opportunity to stretch. It can be an opportunity to question the, the conditioning, the parenting, the teaching that you've been given in this process. To expand and allow for something a little bit more bandwidth for the child. Doesn't matter if it's if, if the old way worked for the older children or for the other children in the family. This particular child is displaying a symptom that's emblematic of some un- unmet need, something in the system that needs something to adjust to. And you can you can fight the war to the death, right? You can fight the rebellious child all they want and end up like a cliche of parents who have a child who walks out of the home at 16 or 17 or 18 and never turns back. You can do that if you want. You're allowed to do that. And and it might even be your value. Or it might be related to one of your values. But in my opinion, there's a huge, enormous loss. and, and And a lost opportunity for the parent. I've learned as a parent, I'm not the same person I was even 15 years ago when I was, when my oldest was at the age of my youngest. I, I don't make the same decisions. I don't have the same rules. And I'm proud of that. I, I talk about this all the time. I've been willing to, to adapt and to grow. And if, if the 15 years ago me met the me of today, I'm not sure he would understand him. Because therapy has changed me. Life has changed me. Raising four children has changed me. I have much more bandwidth now. I I think much less about controlling and shaping my child up into the person that she needs to be, like I did my firstborn. And I think much more like, how can I take care of myself and support her and where she needs to go at the same time? How can I let go of my expectations, my ideas? Years ago, during a heated family session where I was working with somebody in our program, the parents turned to me at one point and said, you know, our daughter is violating our, our family values. Do something about it, basically, is what mom and dad said. And before I could respond, the daughter wisely interrupted the, the question and said, they're not our family values, they're, they're your values. They're your parental values. And if we're just a little bit open, we can see that, right? We can see, we can look back at our parents, at their belief system and their values, and we can see how we've evolved some. That we might have different ideas than they had about life. That the answers that they've accepted to life's most important questions aren't the same answers that we've accepted to life's most important questions. And we can learn to decontextualize and deconstruct our own teaching. I've shared recently that when I was a little young, young parent, I was going to say little kid, but it was really in my young adulthood. I thought to myself, I hope that my generation, if not my generation, I finally get to the point where I don't look at the upcoming generation with disdain and judgment and disgust saying, look at how they're ruining everything. Because every generation seems to do that. Every generation seems to think that the younger generation is absolutely going crazy and ruining everything, ruining the world. And I don't think that that's true. I just think that it's uncomfortable and that they're pushing the limits and that part of those 
pushing of limits are, are messy. Uh, and part of those are to make way for new ideas, new awareness, new enlightenment. There is a culture amongst young people today that is difficult for most of us. I understand that. Me too. Sometimes the way they talk about issues I don't agree with. Sometimes they seem reactive. Sometimes it seems like they know everything. All of those ideas. I have that thought too. But I also have just a little bit of doubt about what I think, about what I believe, about my perspective. And I wonder to myself, are they, they trying to show us something that, that, that was wrong with our upbringing? Are they trying to help us expand, to evolve, to grow, to enlarge ourselves? I've never been a fan, like I said, because I was one of those rebellious teenagers who sought that as the pathway out of the dilemmas of my own childhood. I've never been a big fan of compliance and obedience. Those aren't big values for me. And I'm paying for that right now with my youngest. Right, She's pushing the limits. I've, I've encouraged artistically and, and, and in a lot of ways kind of a rebellious spirit. And, and it's it's a challenge. She makes me uncomfortable and it takes a lot of work and a lot of time and I have to slow down and I can't be efficient and I can't treat her like an employee. I can't treat her like one of my students or even one of my clients in a lot of ways. I have to slow down. I have to listen. I have to consider other options. I have to stretch. I have to be uncomfortable. The cost of compliance and obedience is depression, anxiety, substance abuse addiction, eating disorders, etc. Right? If we if the child I remember one time I was working with a child who came to the program depressed, anxious, um, suicidal. And among other things, when I was helping him in his first couple of weeks, get in touch with the anger that he was turning in on himself, encouraging him to maybe be angry at his parents, he wrote a really angry letter to his parents. In fact, it said something like, I don't want to kill myself anymore, but I might not want you guys in my life anymore. And of course, I got a very concerned call from the parents right away saying, what are you doing to our son? What are you doing? What are you brainwashing our son against us? And I said, well, first of all, I said to them in his letter, according to what he said, he's not suicidal anymore. And that's the principal issue that you sent him to the program for. And if his way out of that anger turned inward is to turn it on you, it's kind of your job. And it takes a lot of energy, mom and dad. It takes a lot of energy to be able to listen, to be able to hear it, for your children to complain about you and talk about what horrible parents you are and how you screwed up and how you don't listen on and on and on, over and over and over again. It takes a tremendous amount of energy. That is why I talk so repeatedly and committedly to you about the fact that you need to do your, your own self-care. You need to take care of yourself. You need to make sure that the energy that's coming into you, the positive energy that's coming into you, is up to, to, to the level of the energy that's required that, that goes out from you, especially when it, when it comes to your children and your family, That's if that's your value, as it is mine. Compliance and obedience, they're just overrated. I love the, the knowledge that's coming out these days in the self-help world that says that 
children who are parent pleasing eventually become people pleasing. And then those people pleasing adults eventually become children pleasing. Right? Struggling to have boundaries and set limits with their children and, and allowing their children to be angry and upset with them. That's really the, the, the expansion that I'm talking about is that you have enough, you have enough, you're, you're large enough, psychologically speaking, that people can be angry and upset and criticize you. And it, it's not that you deny or repress the feelings that come with that, with those dynamics, is that it doesn't hurt you. See, psychotherapy is not about what you do. It's about who you become. The work, that's why I, I spend so little time and energy teaching about skills or the right way to do. Anytime I give an example about a way that you, something you might say or the way that a boundary looks or I, I answer a specific question on, on the Q&As that we do every other broadcast where I give somebody a thought. When I give somebody an idea about how they might respond in a situation, immediately people hear me saying, that's what you should do. That's the right thing to do. And that's not my point. I'm trying to communicate a different way of being. How it would look and sound if you felt differently. If you saw things differently. I can't say this too, too emphatically. This work is not about changing your behavior. That happens. And sometimes you have to kind of fake it till you make it a little bit in the interim. But fundamentally... It's about who you become and, and that, that, that person that you become, ideally, or at least in this work and this way of talking about it, that person you become is you. You get rid of all of the, the constructs that you grew up with. You start to question the things that you were taught, the things that the culture teaches. Right? You, you in essence, rebel. That's part of what, what, what this is asking of you, for you to become the rebel. The, I, I, I've been told this and taught this for 20 years, and I have children that are now over 30. But the longer I parent, the more I realize that very few people in the, in the, 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 the dominant culture out there would look at what I'm doing and admire it or appreciate it. They would judge it from their perspective. And I've had to overcome that judgment or that perception of judgment in this work. In this work, we learn to value, and this takes a tremendous amount of energy, we learn to value and welcome anger, individuality, defiance, rebellion, and the child going their own way. One of the things I'm most proud about in my parenting journey is how different my four children are. How they're different with me, they're different individually, they have different skills, they have different gifts, they have different weaknesses, right? And part of that, part of that, not all of that, is my wife and I, in our co-parenting, have tried to support them on individual paths and to treat them differently. Shafali, uh, Shafali uh, I don't know how to say her last name. She wrote The Awakened Family. She wrote, as we learn to embrace this truth, we stop resisting our children when they act in ways that, that we find challenging. And instead, awaking to the fact that this challenge has come to our present because of something in our past yet to be resolved. If you have a struggling child, 
the basic idea is that there's something in the system that needs attention. We are used to thinking of rebels in negative terms, yet these are people who are responsible for most of our advancements, discoveries, art, philosophy, discoveries of all kinds that come from thinking outside of the box. It is rarely in-box thinkers who come up with revolutionary ideas. Such people are routinely busy being obedient to the fall to and following protocols. New ideas don't live there. They live beyond there. Again, Jamie J.D. Gill said this. We learn to value the setbacks, the 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 sidetracks, the the mistakes. We we learn to value the the rebellion. A, a lot, you know, I, I have a friend who would say that if she got arrested, she said this many times, if she got arrested at any point in her life for um, for a protest, for being involved in a protest and protecting marginalized people or disenfranchised people or people that minorities or people that needed support, that her mother and father would have never been angry with, would have never had any anger for her. And it's kind of like that. And it's not going to look polished. The, the child is not going to look like Galileo. Right? The child is not going to look like Martin Luther King Jr. The child is not going to look like Einstein. The child is going to look like a messy, stupid, immature, impulsive, reactive, dysregulated human. Because that's part of what they are. But also part of what they are is the seed of something beautiful and something we can't imagine. If everything goes well, if everything goes well, our children will, will live a life that we can't even comprehend. I was saying over the break, and this is probably part of my relaxation, I was saying to my children, I said, I think it's entirely possible that your children will be in space at some point. That's entirely possible. If we looked at what's happened over the last 50 years or so, I mean, think about that. Technologically speaking and, and our advancements, and how things are accelerated, that's easy to imagine that some of our children and some of our grandchildren might not even live on this planet. I mean, that's possible. That sounds insane. It sounds psychotic. Again, if my 15 years ago person heard me saying this, he would think, you've gone crazy. But those kinds of things are true. It's like what my 16-year-old daughter said a year and a half ago to us. She said, I realized in therapy that I've never done this before, speaking of herself. She said, I've never done this before. But then she said, after a pause, she said, but then I realized that you guys have never done this before. And, and of course, she's our fourth child. And she went on to explain, you've never parented in this age. You've never parented. People have ideas about social media, technology, all kinds of things that are very difficult to manage and to make decisions around, of course. And they ask the experts, but we don't know. We don't know. Children are going to be related and integrated with, with technology in ways that you and I can't imagine. Imagine, I was thinking just the other day, again, reflecting on progress as a society, as a culture, as a, as a race, as a people, a species. And I was thinking, if my grandparents, I was watching a screensaver while we were waiting for a movie to start on our TV, waiting for some of the family members to, to, to get situated. And I saw these incredible screensavers on our, on our TV um, flashing and I thought I re was reminded about how every so often my grandparents would go on a trip and they would come back with slides and they would put them in the carousel and they would click through however many I think there's 48 slides or something like that per carousel 
They'd flip through a couple of carousels and show and tell stories about their trips to Europe and to, I remember one, one to Alaska that was absolutely beautiful. And I remember thinking just this week when I was looking at the, the TV flip through these amazing images, I wish my grandparents could have seen this. I wish they could have had access to all the, 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 the visual beauty that we get access to. If anything, I think what I'm talking about is humility. And it's hard. We, we, people want, they want dogma, they want answers, they want certainties, they want absolutes. Because those things, dogma and absolutes, it, it takes away our anxiety of the mystery of it all. The anxiety that comes from not knowing. But this work is asking you to face your anxiety. Not to spiritually bypass it by coming up with certain ideas that your parents told you and their parents told them. This story came up just this week. This was something I was taught in undergraduate school. And I shared with my family all those years ago. And, and my wife brought it up this week. This story about a, a young man and, a, and his wife. And, and she was happened to be cooking dinner. And when she served this roast, you could tell how old the story was. When she served him this roast, he said, where are the ends of the roast? I, I, re I really like the ends. And she said, I cut the ends off when I cook it. And he said, why? And she said, that's what my mother did. Sorry for the gender bias. I should change the genders because the, the, the times have changed. But this is how it was told to me. So he was home for a holiday and he asked the mother, he said, why did you cook the ends of, off your roast? And she said, I just did it because my mother did it. And the grandmother of his wife happened to be there. And he went to the grandmother and he said, why did you cut the ends off the roast? And she said, my oven was too small and the pan that I put in it was too small. So I had to cut the ends off to make it fit. And it was just a simply, simple anecdotal story to show us that if we keep repeating things without questioning things, without rebelling, we'll end up passing on our trauma. This rebellion could very well be a signal of breaking the cycle. And yes, when children come to our program, we try to help them make sense of things. We try to help them be seen and be heard. We try to give them that experience and help them have some tools to express it in more assertive ways. But we also have to help the parents and the system change. So then what becomes the threshold? that should cause us concern. When does it stop being a normal developmental stage and a healthy rebellion? And when does it start becoming something that needs, needs treatment? So I'm going to talk about the, the disorder specifically. First of all, oppositional defiant disorder. It's a pattern of angry or irritable mood, argue, argumentative defiant behavior, or vindictiveness lasting at least six months. It starts to interrupt functioning. School, legal problems, Safety in the home, right? It becomes significant over a significant period of time. But by the way, it can be true. Two things can be true. It can be a disorder that needs treatment and it also can be a signal of a systemic issue. In fact, I believe that, that virtually all the time, those two things exist and more or less uh, of the equation. A lot of times it does sound like um, a teenager, angry, irritable, having a bad temper, easily annoyed, angry and resentful, argues with authority, refuses to comply with requests. This is from the diagnostic manual, some of the highlights. Deliberately annoys people, right? That just sounds like you're describing a teenager, 
blames others. Vindictiveness is a part of it. You get to decide. That's the answer. You get to decide. When, when, we, re, when we rewrote part of our emotional curriculum several years ago, after many, many years of me apologizing again for a tradition that was handed down to me from other programs before I even started this work, we changed the impact letter to what we call the hopes and intentions letter, the first letter that a parent writes to a child in treatment. The impact letter was designed to say, here's what you did, here's your behavior, and here's how it impacted us. And I knew that that was wrong. I knew that that was a wrong entryway into the therapeutic process and discussion. So I tried to, to, to tweak it. I tried to soften it, tried to mitigate it. And then finally I had had enough and just thought, we're just going to rewrite the letter after many years. And there are still our programs today that still encourage and assign the impact letter. And if you're an old timer that was here before 2015, you have the experience at evoke of the same thing. But anyway, we, we rewrote the letter to be a hopes and intentions letter. And the essential anatomy of the hopes and intentions letter is this. And this is the answer to the question about when does it change from a normal developmental stage to something of concern that needs treatment. This is the thinking. The letter, the outline of the letter is this. Here's what's going on. We love you. We see what's going on and we don't know how to help you. So we're going to send you to evoke so that you and we can get help. It's that simple. It's not shame. It's not judgment. It's not labeling. It's not criticizing. It's definitely not talking about how their behavior and mental health issues are affecting mom and dad. Right? That's mom and dad's job to take care of, not the child's. It's just a loving way of surrendering and saying, I need help. And I, Brad Reedy, I need help too. I've relied on other professionals to help my family. I've relied on therapists. Of course, I've relied on medical doctors and psychiatrists to help my family and myself. We rely on people. We have, like you, created this virtual village to get help. There's no shame in that. It's just part of the process. It's, it's a signal of somebody who's wise and resourceful and flexible and, and teachable to seek help and get support. Operational defiant disorder is less severe than conduct disorder. Children with conduct disorder have a, 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 the one thing that changes is that there's a basic threat to the safety and, and sovereignty of another person, stealing and violence toward other people or animals, right? There's more cruelty involved. So oppositional defiant is more rebellious and annoying, argumentative and vindictive. And conduct disorder is a little bit farther along, more severe, more, of more concern. Conduct disorder is, is typified by the, the fact that the base, basic rights of others are being violated. Bullying, threatening, intimidating others, initiating fights physically, using a weapon, physically cruel to people, cruel to animals, Stealing something with, with, with somebody when you're confronting them. Mugging, purse snatching, extortion, armed robbery. Forcing somebody into sexual activity. It, it, it has in it a significant impairment in empathy. And I'm going to talk about empathy and how to treat the lack of empathy. So that's what conduct disorder is, a little farther along. 
farther along than that or the precursor conduct disorder becomes the precursor to what is called antisocial antisocial personality disorder this is not about not being social this is being um what others have called um sociopathology in the past right this is an adult you have to be 18 years of age that's one of the qualifications of antisocial personality disorder and it is a, a lack of empathy being very self-centered very narcissistic a lack of pro-social behaviors, very manipulative, a lack of concern for the feelings, needs, or suffering of others, a lack of remorse, an incapacity for mutually intimate relationships because other people are turned into objects, things to, to, that, that are, are there to get your needs met, if this is what you're suffering from, manipulative, deceitful, callous, hostile, and a disinhibition for social norms and expectations, especially as it relates to the rights of others. Antisocial personality disorder is pretty rare. It, 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 I think it's overused, just like I think conduct disorder is overused for a lot of people. It's used to shame and judge people, young people, a lot. It's something to be aware of, but it's really somebody who's become hardened and the the patterns have become crystallized and it's very difficult to treat and sometimes there is very little success with this disorder and the person needs to be contained frankly in fact i've met a couple of people who who are afraid that they might have antisocial personality disorder and have wondered if the best thing for them to be is to be alone their entire life so that they don't hurt people. So how does one develop these more severe forms? And I've had to, the, the, the privilege and the challenge of, of working with individuals, specifically sex offenders for the state of Utah. Let me tell you the pathway to creating this, and then I want to tell you the pathway to healing it or treating it or preventing it. When a child or an individual, young person, gets treated like an object. Their only value is what they can bring to the table. Their talent, their beauty, their success. That's to objectify them. When their feelings don't matter, when their inner world doesn't matter, when the only thing that matters is, is what they can do and display, especially as it reflects upon the parents. When they are abused, emotionally, physically, sexually, when they are abused and, and treated as an object in those ways. The individual essentially becomes an object in their own mind, a thing, not a person, not a human anymore, but a thing. And essentially, we all think of other people as kind of like us, right? When we go out in the world, we think most people are like us. I'm not talking about same likes and dislikes and preferences. I'm talking about the same animal, essentially. We, we assume that people that are driving next to us on the freeway are, are like us, have the, the essentially the same makeup. So if I'm, if I'm an object, if I'm a thing, if I've been turned into a thing or I've turned myself into a thing to tolerate the pain and the abuse that I've experienced, then everybody else is a thing also. Everybody else is an object. And I can satisfy my gratuitous needs 
at their expense because I'm not hurting a person. I'm not in touch with my humanity, so I'm not in touch with their humanity. That's what antisocial personality disorder is. That's what the severe end of this stuff is. If we turn people, if we reduce people, even children, to objects, then they will treat themselves and other people like objects. So what is the cure? What is the, the antidote? Is we treat them like people. We teach them how to feel. We let them feel their anger, their sadness, their rage, their fear. We learn to contain it. We learn to tolerate. We learn to hold it. We learn to metabolize it. We learn to get better and better at letting our children say, Mom and Dad, here's what I don't like. Here's how you screwed up. Here's how you messed me up. We don't see those, those, those trite things that people say like, Oh my gosh, picking on Mom and Dad. Yeah, blame Mom and Dad again. Oh yes, it's all my fault. We don't tease them. We don't ideally defend ourselves. We don't try to show them the videos and the pictures that prove that their childhood is good, essentially gaslighting them. We let them feel and think and have their own experience. We teach them to feel. And when a human being, this is magic. When a human being learns to feel, they recognize the feelings in others. It's that simple. In other words, if we want to teach empathy, we do it by showing empathy. Right? When you think of somebody abusing somebody, don't you want to say to them, don't you know how you made that other person feel? But their answer would be no, not on a, not on a deep level, of course not. Because I don't have feelings, because I block them out. Because I've numbed myself. I've repressed, repressed the pain and, and the fear so deeply that it's almost as if it doesn't exist in me. I've become a stone object. So if I hit somebody or sexually abuse somebody, I'm not hurting a person. I'm doing this to a thing. It would be, I would, I would need to feel as guilty as I would if I was taking a hammer or, or a chisel to a rock out in a field. There's no reason for remorse and for regret. But if I get in touch with my own humanity, if I'm a feeling person, I'll project that onto everybody else and I'll see them as feeling people also. A great book, The Secret Life of Bees, there is this story. There is this psychology in this where, where one of the characters has this experience of feeling so deeply and recognize the feelings, not just in other people, but even animals, right? We recognize it in every living thing. That is enlightenment. That's what the gurus mean when they say we're all one. We're all connected. One of my favorite writers, Charles Eisenstein, a philosopher, a contemporary philosopher, talks about this idea of interbeing, this Buddhist idea that we're all connected. He says the reason that it hurts your heart when you hear about the coral reefs being destroyed, the reason it hurts you is because it is happening to you, to your extended self. In the night, in the, the Night and Rusty Armor book that we ask all of our clients to read and we would invite all of you to read written by Robert Fisher the knight is wearing this armor can't get it off goes to look for Merlin the, the magician to, so that he can get it removed and ends up crying and, and, and 
and the, the, the visor falls off of his armor. That's the first piece that comes off. And when that comes off, he's able to eat and to drink, and he's able to hear the animals talk, which at first, in this playful little book, this allegory, seems fine, but he says that the character says, oh my gosh, are you talking to me? And one of the animals says to him, now that you're learning to feel, you can, you can sense the feelings and the vibrations of everything and everybody else. So our program is not about getting children or parents or adults or anybody to be compliant. Our process is about helping them become themselves. And we believe that when people do that, that they'll be full of love. They'll be full of generosity. They'll be full of kindness. They'll be full of compassion. And we encourage that and facilitate that by showing those things to them. So the cause of these kinds of disorders, these disorders of rebellion, I'll call them, is pain. And the use of the numbing techniques not to feel, to learn not to feel, to turn yourself into a non-feeling object, and then seeing others as essentially the same animal, treating others as objects. And then the experience is that I'm not hurting anybody else. I'm just doing this to other things. And the solution, the antidote, the, the prevention is learning how to feel. So when I had men come to me who had abused women and children, we didn't ask them to feel guilt or to recognize how they hurt their victims. We asked them to tell stories, both historic and present day, of how they were hurt, which, by the way, they did not want to talk about and had no contact with. And it's very difficult to treat. Those are very difficult issues to treat, but that's still the process. Teaching them to feel their fear, their insecurity. That's what, you know, I was just thinking about this with my wife just recently. Part of finding you, part of this work is when you come to terms with who you are, you can admit your faults easily. This morning I asked my wife a question and she snapped at me and I was hurt by it. We took a little time out and I came back to her and we started talking and I said, I, I just didn't feel like I deserved that, that, that reaction. And she owned up to something that she was embarrassed about. That's all she did. She just owned up to something. And when she owned up to it, uh, my anger was turned into compassion, to love for her. The whole issue dissolved because my wife had the courage to be who she was in that moment and to tell the truth about her defense and her fear and her insecurity instead of defending her response. The treatment is attachment-based therapies. This is what I'm talking about. You do your work first. Attachment-based therapy, attachment theory says... If the parent does their work and becomes more of themselves, more of a self, they're able to raise selves, people, humans, more effectively. So attachment is the foundation. And the key that unlocks the door is you going back in your history and looking at your work, looking at what happened to you, looking at your traumas, big and small traumas. And you might say, I don't have a lot of trauma. We all have some. We all have issues that are worthy of our analysis, of, of our 
deconstruction of our uh, worthy of our uh, unraveling our consideration. Sometimes cognitive behavioral therapy can, can help. Some of what I've been talking about today has in it some cognitive behavioral ideas, understanding in essence that our behaviors serve a deeper purpose to protect us. And that as we're healing and feeling more safe in our bodies, we can challenge our thinking, which then will lead us to feel even better and safer. Family therapy is essential. Doesn't matter what the disorder is. Doesn't matter if it's oppositional defiant disorder or virtually any other disorder. Family therapy is encouraged because that's the system in which human beings exist. And even if your family lives far away or you're an adult, you can still do family therapy. Even if your family's all passed away. Murray Bowen, Dr. Murray Bowen, one of the founders of family therapy, of family systems theory, never met with two people at the same time, ever. And he's credited, he's one of the people that's credited with with the, 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 the founding of family systems therapy. Because it's understanding our context, where we came from, our histories. It goes all the way back to Freud and Jung and the, the Winnicott, right? It goes back to understanding how we are made, how human beings develop. Behavioral therapies can be helpful, but in more severe cases, like I said, they might be necessary. But behavioral therapies can also miss the mark significantly. It can turn into a power struggle. It can reduce children into behaviors instead of full people with, with psychological, emotional dilemmas that they are simply acting out. Behavioral therapies are really important as long as we understand the function of the symptom. That's a part of behavioral theory is what is this behavior serving? I remember years ago in undergrad, we read about this study in San Diego, I think, in an affluent community where they were trying to get library book, books back that had been checked out or lost or stolen. And at first they offered the students a monetary reward for bringing library books back. And they got almost no response. It was an affluent community, you see. These were well-to-do families. So the student council came to the, the principal and said, you know, we have an idea that might work better than give us, giving us a few dollars, which none of us need. And that is, let us wear our own clothes for every library book that we bring back. Give us a credit where we get to wear our own clothes during PE instead of the school uniform. So the principal took the risk and changed the policy and the library books came flooding back in. We have to go deeper and understand. Sometimes when people talk about a, a child or an individual self-sabotaging, what they have to understand is, yes, on one level they are self-sabotaging, but on another level they're doing something that's protective. Let's understand that level. And that's really what this work is. The more you unravel yourself, the more you'll see others. Whatever I have to offer, whatever I have to offer, whatever the size of my contribution to this work is, it comes not from my study as a therapist. Or very little, I should say. It comes from, in combination with my study as a therapist, my work as a client over the past 30 years. My work as a teenager being sent to therapy against my will. <laughs> 
being in family therapy, later on in marital therapy and individual therapy, doing my own, my own finding you experiences. Like the knight in rusty armor, you'll learn that if you want to understand somebody else's darkness, the best method, this is Carl Jung actually who said this, the best method for understanding somebody else's darkness is to understand your own. If you want to understand people, understand yourself first. The behavior of an oppositional child will often become a distraction for both the individual, right? The, one of the purposes of our symptoms is to protect us from feeling. Carl Jung said, neuroses is a substitute for legitimate suffering. In other words, it covers up the more legitimate and deeper suffering. It still can be suffering. Your children still may, still may be suffering, but they're not, according to Jung, suffering the, the legitimate, the, the underlying feeling. So we learn that the behavior, the oppositional behaviors serve a deeper purpose. And it's our job to just understanding. First of all, it changes us, right? The minute you realize that the child is doing something that, that serves them at a deeper level to keep them safe. Just like when my wife, it wasn't even that she apologized for what she said to me this morning. She just owned up to what her defense was about. And my anger was, was immediately dissipated. If we understand our children, we'll, re we'll respond differently. We won't respond out of a power struggle, out of a, a, a need to shame or to control behaviors. And the great irony of it all, like Carl Rogers, the great Carl Rogers said, the great paradox is that it's only when I accept myself just as I am that I can change. I know it's terrifying. I know it doesn't make sense. I know it's not logical or common sense. But that's really what Mr. Fred Rogers was trying to teach also. Just give children a place to talk about what they have come to believe are unspeakable things, feelings. And they'll be okay. Avoiding power struggles, avoid using emotions, anger, sadness, fear, disappointment to try to modify behavior. If you don't know what that sounds like, my podcast and my chapter in my book, The Journey of the Rogue Parent, on control versus influence talk a lot about that. I believe the most common mistakes made by middle class parents is the use of emotions and expressed emotions to try to guilt or shame or obligate their children, into behaving a certain way. It is not the child's job to make mom and dad feel good. Oppositional behavior, uh, oppositional defined disorders are much more complex than a moral failing. In fact, sometimes it's an it's a overwhelming sensitivity to having failed. A belief that one can't possibly be good enough. And the only response is to burn it all down. Sometimes we have to understand what underlying structures are present, how much attachment damage has happened, how much of a sense of self is intact and exists. And ultimately, like I said, we teach empathy. We teach morality by showing empathy. You have to find the story. 
where everything makes sense. That's what psychotherapy is. You find the story where everything the child is doing or everything the individual is doing makes sense. You know, I think about this all the time. I almost said it earlier. I talk about parenting a lot. And and that's the genesis of this podcast. That the, the original start of this podcast was in a context of parenting. But remember, I'm talking about your parenting as a child. It's all the same. Find the story where everything that the child is doing makes sense. And in that story, those terrible choices, those maladaptive coping strategies, that pathology makes sense. And they ask something of the system, of the parent, of the professionals helping. And then the parents and the professionals get creative and resourceful and try to figure out ways to give the child what the child needs. As I wrote in The Journey of the Heroic Parent, healthy parenting is its own reward. It creates a better life for you and your family. As I have said, being a healthy parent means being a better mother, father, brother, sister, and friend, a better person. This is the goal of healthy parenting, to be the best parent and human being that you can be. But the measure of this is in your own personal serenity, even when your children continue to struggle. Good parenting doesn't bring well-behaved children. In fact, good parenting probably encourages and allows for some acting out as a part of the process. I love this passage from Dr. Gill's book, The Misery of the Good Child. This is on page one. Page one, paragraph one. She writes, All persons have limits. Consequently, all parents have limits. It is routine for us to discipline or punish our children when they exceed our limits. Unconsciously, our goal in doing this is to get them to behave in ways that we can much more easily tolerate and manage. Besides, it makes our load lighter. It is routine for these interactions to, for us to feel like we are helping the child by our actions. They can't just go around upsetting people. The world, after all, has limits and the child needs to learn about these. This is a way of saying that parents have different bandwidths of what they can and cannot handle. Some parents are extremely rigid and can only manage a little breadth. Some, on the other hand, can manage a wide range with seeming ease. From the child's perspective, however, the picture is not so clear. First of all, the child picks up a mixed message. The over-the-table message is, this is for your own good. The under-the-table message is, this is my limit. I can't go any farther. That is the parent being incapable. What now? The child is likely to be puzzled, if not frightened. We punish and behaviorally manage our children to help them fit within our bandwidth. And we assume, without the kind of exploration that I'm talking about of our own histories, that that's for their own good. But so much of it is is a reflection about our breadth, our ability to allow for variations and difficulties. Sometimes I get so busy, I'm so focused on my career, my job, supporting my family financially, I don't have time in this paradigm to support my children. It's too much energy. Sometime when my children mention at dinner something that I've done, I just want to say, give me a break, I'm working all day, I don't need to listen to again about complaints about how I screwed up, right? But that is our work. The work is to become a self. The work is to say, this is what I can't and cannot handle. This is my limit. I can't go any further. See, the, 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 the solution to this is not to stop creating behavioral consequences and limits around us. The goal is to own them. Subjectively own them. 
This is what I need. This is my limit. This is my boundary. If you get into recovery from codependency, you will switch the, the thinking, the language from this is the right thing, this is inappropriate, this is what needs to happen, to this is my line in the sand. This is my boundary. This is my limit. You will learn that no is a complete sentence and that you don't have to have to justify or prove that you're right. Jamie Gill writes, the child's defiance, their resentful, angry pushback is best understood as expressing vengeful disapproval of their parents' disapproval. I'm going to read that again. The child's defiance, their resentful, angry pushback is best understood as expressing vengeful disapproval of their parents' disapproval. She goes on to say, harsh limits may serve to control behavior in the short term, but such an approach does not help the child learn how to self-regulate. In fact, harsh limits can precipitate a resistance on the part of the child to take responsibility. True self-discipline, on the other hand, develops from the internalization of loving limits. In harsh parenting, the child learns the locus of control is outside of the self instead of developing a center of that that manages behavior. When limits are established without empathy, fear becomes the motivating force. Of course, she says, the good kid is never the real kid either. The only real kid is the whole kid. Good parts, bad parts, and those in between. I love this commercial that was based on this, this letter written a long time ago by Apple. You can look this up if you haven't seen it in a long time. Here's to the crazy ones, they wrote, or they, they quoted. Here's to the crazy ones, the misfits, the rebels, the troublemakers, the round pegs and the square holes, the ones who see things differently. They're not, found, they're not fond of rules, and they have no respect for the status quo. You can quote them, disagree with them, glorify or vilify them. About the only thing you can't do is ignore them, because they change things. They push the human race forward. And while some may see, may see them as the crazy ones, we see genius. Because the people who are crazy enough to think they can change the world are the ones who do. And like I said earlier, the outcome of healthy parenting is not well-behaved children, but rather peace, serenity, confidence, clarity, and the possibility of connection. I guess in all of this, I just hope that you ask yourself questions. I hope you look at yourself. I hope you look at your childhood critically. Hope you look at your parents critically, not not because you want to blame them and and, and hang your hat on, on your responsibility on them. That's not what it is. But to understand, to get free of it, to, to get rid of the, the fetters and the chains that hold you back, that limit you. You know, I've had to learn that things that were just a given in our family no longer serve. Children don't owe grandparents hugs, right? They don't owe anybody a hug. I don't tell my children to apologize when they don't feel sorry. I don't believe that you're only as happy as your least happy child as some kind of ideal to strive for. I don't believe that it's a parent, that it's a child's responsibility to make the parent feel good about themselves, to support the parent's ego, to be a reflection of the parent's worth. I don't believe that stuff. I don't believe it's my job to make my parents proud. I don't believe it's your children's job to make you proud. 
I believe their job is to become who they are. I believe your job, my job, is to become who we are. And when we get rid of all the shoulds and the shouldn'ts, when we get rid of all the expectations and the rules, the only thing left is love. Really, the only thing left is love. When I got rid of all the extra stuff this week that I had to do by taking a week off during a really busy and intense week for our family, I had much, much more love to give. I hope this is helpful. If you want to read more about this, The Journey of the Heroic Parent and The Audacity to Be You, the two books that I've written, are available on Amazon and Audible. Like I said, the next intensives that are available, January 17th through 21st, is the next in-person available, January 26th through 28th. Half the time, a third of the cost is the online version. We have a Returning to You, which is the sequel of Finding You. That'll be March 6th through 10th. And then the Finding Connection Workshop, February 7th through 11th, is the Couples Finding You Workshop that I'll be running with my wife. We have Custom Finding Connection for Couples and Co-Parents, Opportunities and Finding Family for Families, Contact Intensives at EvokeTherapy.com. We have support groups for current and alumni families. For current alumni families, the next offering is tonight at 7. If you're listening to me, you're late. Tonight at 7 p.m. Next one is January 4th at 7 p.m. Mountain Time. Once a month, we have an alumni only meeting. January 17th at 6 p.m. Mountain Time is that next offering. And then we have an intensive support group online. February 13th at 7 p.m. Mountain Time is the next offering. Go to our website or email supportgroups at evoketherapy.com for more questions. If you want a coach to help you work through this, this, the wonderful thing about the pandemic, one of the wonderful things about the pandemic is that people became much more comfortable doing coaching and therapy virtually. So if you want a therapist or a coach working with parenting, couples, families, trauma, grief, codependency, parenting a child and treatment, you can contact coaching at evoketherapy.com to, to be connected with one of our coaches. We have a family trek option for families who want to do an experiential therapeutic experience in the wilderness. We ask all current parents to attend six of any of the following 12-step support groups, alanon.org, coda.org, familiesanonymous.org, or adultchildren.org, also refugerecovery.org, and nami.org are two organizations that have local meetings, classes, and resources in your communities. All these broadcasts are available on Spotify or your favorite podcast app. Just search Finding You and Evoke Therapy Podcast wherever you wherever you consume your podcast and subscribe there and you'll be notified when the next one drops, which is usually about 24 hours or less after I broadcast these initially. You can also go to soundcloud.com on your computer and listen there. You can also watch the video rebroadcast of any of these on Evoke's YouTube channel. You can find Evoke Therapy programs and me, Dr. Brad Reedy, on X, Threads, and Instagram using the handles at Evoke Therapy and at Dr. Brad Reedy, respectively. And you can find the Evoke Intensives program on Instagram using the handle at Evoke Therapy Intensives. On Facebook, you can find us by searching either Evoke Therapy Programs or Evoke Therapy Intensives. And of course, our blog has wonderful content written by our various staff each week, not just talking about things that you need to learn about, but them sharing their journey, their heroic journeys. If you want to get back, it's almost the end of the year. If you want to donate, I've had a couple of people reach out to me uh, for people who can't afford treatment. The three charitable partners that we give to and support and give discounts to include ChooseMentalHealth.org, SkyIsTheLimitFund.org, and EvokeFamilyFoundation.org. You can earmark your tax-deductible donations for a specific population or program. My next broadcast will be January 2nd at 6 p.m. Mountain Time. 
I'll be having a live Q&A. Any leftover questions, anytime you want to send us questions in between, suggestions, questions. If you want copies of any of the slides that I've used on any of our broadcasts, you can always email us any of those requests or questions to webinar at evoketherapy.com. All right, folks, I hope this is a helpful point of contact. And just for attending, I, I like to say thank you for showing up and being willing to do your work and look at yourself. If you're listening to this or watching this, what that tells me is that you are willing to listen to somebody who's asking you to look at yourself. And for and on behalf of the people that you love and the people that love you, thanks for showing up and being willing to do that work. Have a great evening, and I'll talk to you next week on January 2nd. Take care. Bye-bye.